This is the NC Everything Podcast, a show where we talk about everything that has anything to do with North Carolina. Hey folks, and welcome to episode 26 of the show. I'm your host, Curtis, and today we're going to be talking about the University of North Carolina. Now, I want to say that just recently, or it feels pretty recent to me, I covered the Moorhead Planetarium, and yes, that's on the UNC campus. And probably in the next couple weeks, I'm going to be covering Mount Mitchell, which was surveyed by Elijah Mitchell, who was a math professor at UNC. Now, some of you may have figured out by now that I'm from Chapel Hill. I'm actually born and raised here in Chapel Hill. But I'm not covering UNC so much because I love my hometown necessarily. It's just that UNC is the oldest public university in the country. And that means it was the first university in North Carolina. And since this has turned out to be a history podcast, uh, a lot of my topics are going to end up circling back to UNC and New Bern and Bath and a lot of these old colonial places but I don't want you to think that I'm kicking a dead horse. It's kind of like uh, a few weeks ago, I was looking through my, my past episodes and I made the comment that uh, a lot of the episodes have something to do with the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, and I don't want this to be a war podcast. But then I realized that for the first you know 100 years of our nation's history, we were fighting somebody all the time. And so it's, it's kind of unavoidable to bring up some kind of war if I'm going to look into the history of our state. Anyway, before I get too far into it, I want to say thank you for coming back. And if this is your first time here, thank you for showing up. And if you're interested in some of my past episodes or you haven't heard all my past episodes, you can find every single one of them at www.thencevertingpodcast.com. And if you want to be a uber fan or ultra fan or mega fan or you know a more than regular fan then go ahead and follow me on facebook at the nc everything podcast you can follow me on twitter by searching for at everything nc and my instagram and this is the long one is the underscore nc underscore everything underscore podcast and the last thing i want to say before we get into it is that Charlie the Cat is hanging out with me in the studio today, and he's being a little more aggravating than usual. And I may not stop it every time. I've done had to stop recording a few times because he's in the way. Um, so you may hear some weird noises coming from him as we record. All right, now let's get into UNC. Now, like I said, it is the oldest public university in the nation. Um, there is some contention with Harvard, and I read it somewhere a long time ago. I tried to find it for this research, and I, I couldn't again, but it's it's some kind of bureaucratic thing. Um, Harvard is actually an older school, but UNC, it's something with UNC. Maybe UNC was public before Harvard was, but I hate to be vague about that. But anyway, UNC goes down in the history books as the oldest public university in the country. So it starts in 1776. This is when North Carolina drafted its first state constitution. And then the state constitution contained a provision for public support of education. Now, the university may have actually opened a lot sooner, but the Revolutionary War kind of got in the way. So it was 13 years later before any kind of university actually came to fruition. 
1789, William Richardson Davy wrote the act that established the university. And it was also in 1789 that the General Assembly chartered the school. Now, it didn't take people very long to decide that they wanted the university in Orange County. That was mainly because Orange County was kind of in the middle of the state. They also wanted it kind of away from the big towns out in an open area. And so they found an area in Orange County that was up on a hill called New Hope. Now, the New Hope area was pretty unpopulated. I mean, there was people around, but the only standing structure out here was a small Anglican chapel. And eventually, this area would be known as New Hope Chapel Hill. Another reason they picked this particular spot is not only was it in the middle of the state, but it was right near the intersections of the roads from Petersburg to Pittsburgh and from New Bern to Salisbury. And that was pretty important because their idea was that everybody in North Carolina should have an opportunity to come to the university. So putting the university at the intersection of these major roads was pretty important to that goal. And the last reason I have that the university chose this area was because several of the landowners were willing to give up their land for a trade. And the trade was that if they gave up some of their property, the university would let one child from each family receive an education for free. And so, on October 12th, 1793, William Richardson Davy and several trustees laid the cornerstone of the first building. And this building was called Old East. Now, I've been to Old East, and you can still see that original cornerstone right there at the foundation. By the way, you're going to hear me probably talk about my experience at UNC several times through this podcast. I didn't go to UNC, but it's 12 miles from my house, and it's a beautiful campus. So on the, the pretty days in the spring and summer, it's not uncommon for me and my family to go up to Chapel Hill and get some lunch and then walk around campus for a little while. Anyway, back to Old East. Um, it is still standing today, like I said, and it's the oldest state university building in America. Two years after Old East was built, now this would be on January 15th, 1795, Old East opens to the public and UNC becomes the only public university in the U.S. to, to award degrees in the 18th century. The first student to arrive at the university was a man named James Hinton. Now, he was from Hanover County, and he showed up on February 12th, 1795. Now, I don't know if he did anything notable, but he will always go down in history as the first UNC student. Well, by the end of March in 1795, there were two professors and 41 students on site. The next building that they built was Person Hall, and this was in 1796. Now, it was used as the campus chapel for a long time. Well, the campus hit a growth spurt in the 1800s. So as I talk about UNC in the 1800s, you're going to hear me name off a few buildings that were built in that century. Now, I can't talk about every building on campus because there are a lot of them, but I'll name some of the more historical ones. Now, we're going to start with the South Building. It was built in 1814, and it was mainly for classrooms and dormitory space. In 1818, a Yale graduate named Elijah Mitchell joined the faculty as a professor of mathematics. Now, Professor Mitchell went on, like I said at the beginning of the show, to survey the highest peak in the Black Mountains, which eventually became Mount Mitchell. A year after Mitchell came to UNC, now we're in 1819, his classmate from Yale, Dennison Olmsted, came to UNC as a professor. 
Olmsted was going to be the professor of chemistry. In 1823, Old West was built, and Old West was meant to look just like Old East. In 1837, they got a new chapel building called Gerard Hall. In 1845, the School of Law was established. In 1852, they finished building a new ballroom and library, and they called this building Smith Hall. Now, the name was changed over the years to Playmakers Theater. Now, I know I'm just going through a timeline. Uh, Some of my episodes are going to be like that. Um, If I knew a more interesting way of delivering all these, I guess, waypoints in history to you, I would, but I reckon this is just how it has to be for this episode. And now, in this part of the, the college's history, the Civil War broke out. Now, during the Civil War, a lot of the universities around the country actually closed down. But not UNC. They stayed open. Now, they did close down for a little while during the Reconstruction period. But during the war, they kept on enrolling students and kept on doing their thing. In 1877, they started a program for teaching teachers. It was like a summer school. And in 1879, medical and pharmaceutical programs began. The law school was incorporated in 1894. In 1897, they started to allow women to enter postgraduate courses. Now, also in 1897, that's when the old well came to the campus. Now, I know not everybody in the state or everybody who listens to this show cares about the old well. So maybe this episode is just for Chapel Hillians and UNC alumni. But the old well is kind of a, I don't know, a figurehead of UNC. You'll see it on all kinds of t-shirts and hats and other paraphernalia. But it it looks kind of like a gazebo and it has a water fountain in the middle of it. Today, I, I know it didn't have one back then. It was actually an old well. Speaking of that, that water that comes out of that fountain tastes pretty horrible. It's obviously not well water. It comes out of a pipe, it tastes like. But at the time, there was an actual well there, or I guess there still is an, a well there. But before 1897, it was just an, an old wooden well house like you might see on a rural property. We have one on my property. Well, the university president of the time, Edward Alderman, Alderman, He wanted to make something a little prettier than an old wooden well house. It was part of his effort for campus beautification, it said. And so he replaced it with what they call a rotunda that was modeled after the Temple of Love in Versailles. In 1900, Sally Walker Stockard became the first woman to earn a degree from the university. She got a master's degree with a thesis on the history of Alamance County. And maybe I'm a geek. Actually, I know I'm a geek. But that sounds pretty interesting. I I would love to read what she wrote. Also, by 1900, the beginning of the 20th century, there were 512 students enrolled at the college, and they had a faculty, a faculty of 35. The first Pi Beta Kappa chapter in North Carolina was established at the university in 1904. In 1907, the University Women's Club had been organized. Now, around 1915, the leaders of the university kind of wanted to, wanted to broaden the, the mission of the university. So they started adding some schools at the college. And this was the School of Education in 1915, the School of Commerce, which is now the Keenan Flagler Business School. That came in 1919. The School of Public Welfare, which is now the School of Social Work, came in 1920. By the time 1930 rolled around, the school had enrolled 2,600 kids, 
and their faculty was 222 full-time and 85 part-time members. During the Great Depression, the school received some funds from the state, which sounds counterproductive, but whatever. But with this money, they built even more new buildings. The Moorhead-Patterson Bell Tower was dedicated in 1931, and I talk a little bit more about that in my Moorhead Planetarium episode, which is episode 19. Also in 1931, the School of Library Science, which is now the School of Information and Library Science, was formed. Now, also around this time, other colleges in the state started joining up with UNC. So the first three, starting in 1931, was the Women's College at Greensboro, which later became UNC Greensboro, and North Carolina State College at Raleigh, which later became NC State. And this is the beginning of what they called the Consolidated UNC System. Now, this Consolidated consolidated UNC System, it's a bunch of colleges that's controlled by a board of trustees, but they have one president who has offices on the UNC Chapel Hill campus. Also at this time, the University of North Carolina officially became the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. All right, back to the timeline. The Institute of Government, which is now the School of Government, was put together in 1931. Man, 1931 was a pretty busy year. The School of Public Health, now the Gillings School of Global Public Health, was put together in 1936. The campus got a few more new buildings during World War II since part of the campus was used to train military personnel. In 1942, they established the Institute of Government, which is now the School of Government, and this was the first school of its kind in the country. In 1949, the John Motley Moorhead Planetarium opens, and this was a special auditorium that he gave to the university as a gift because he was an alumni and he wanted to kind of pay back what they gave him as far as his life's achievements. But with this auditorium, students could go in and pretty much study the whole universe with the use of a special projector called a Zeiss projector. And like I said, episode 19 is only about the Moorhead Planetarium. When the Division of Health Affairs was established at the college in 1949, this made UNC one of the few schools in the country with the five health professions, dentistry, nursing, medicine, pharmacy, and public health. The college gets its first radio station in 1953 when students started broadcasting out of Swain Hall. Now today, that is WUNC-FM. Two years later, in 1955, UNC got its first television station started. And today, that is WUNC-TV. Also in 1955, the university started admitting African-American students. The Ackland Art Museum, which is actually one of my more favorite places on campus, it opened in 1958. And 1969 was a pretty important year because three more universities joined the UNC consolidation. This was UNC Charlotte, UNC Asheville, and UNC Wilmington. Jumping ahead to 1971, 10 more institutions were added. This was Appalachia State, Eastern Carolina, Elizabeth City State University, Fayetteville State University, and North Carolina Agriculture and Technical University, better known as NCANT. Also joining was North Carolina Central University and the North Carolina School of Arts. Pembroke State University, now UNC Pembroke, joined up. Also, Western Carolina University and Winston-Salem State University. By the early 2000s, 
UNC's academic offerings span more than 100 fields, including 84 bachelor's, 165 master's, and 108 doctoral degrees, as well as professional degrees in dentistry, medicine, pharmacy, and law. Today, the university has more than 300 buildings and more than 29,000 students each year. Also, their faculty is now 3,800 members. And that's all I have for the history of UNC, but that's not the end of this show, because since I am from Chapel Hill, I kind of wanted to talk about some of my favorite spots on campus. And these are in no particular order, but I'm going to start with Gimgul Castle. Gimgul Castle, Gimgul, that's G-I-M-G-O-O-L, by the way, it's located in Battle Park, and this is the headquarters of the Order of Gimgul. The Order of Gimgul is an exclusive members-only secret society made up of UNC students, and um, that name is pretty accurate because I tried to find more information to tell you about the secret society, and I couldn't find anything. But the story behind the castle is that in 1915, the Order of Gimgul began buying land at Point Point Prospect, and that's where Battle Park is today. Now, they got a bunch of stonemasons from Valdez, and they made sure these guys were descended from medieval Waldensians of southern France and Italy. That's the guys they wanted to build the castle. The castle was completed in 1926, and it functions as the social and fraternal center of the Order of Gimgul. Now, I'm going to post some pictures of it in in the show notes. Um, It's certainly a castle, but if you're thinking about like a medieval Cinderella castle, that's not it. It's not humongous. From certain angles, it just kind of looks like a stone house. But it is a really cool building, and it has kind of a mysterious backstory, which I'm going to tell you. The name Gimgul was inspired by the disappearance of a boy, a student at the school, named Peter Pelham Dromgul, that's D-R-O-M-G-O-O-L-E. He disappeared in 1833. Now, legend is that he was killed at the site of where the castle was ultimately put up. The thing about Peter is, his dad wanted him to go to UNC for years. I think his dad was a UNC graduate as well. But Peter failed the entrance exam and his dad was pissed. Now, Peter told him that he got a tutor and he was expected to get into the school pretty soon. However... Peter and his daddy fell out, and they weren't speaking to each other. Peter said he was he was going to sail for Europe, and then poof, he vanished. Now, naturally, you might think, well, he sailed for Europe. That's what he said he was going to do. And actually, you're probably right. Most likely, that's what really happened. The problem is, he literally left everything behind. He didn't take anything with him. When they checked his dorm room, I mean... Like I said, everything was there. It was it was like he stepped out for tea or something. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I would run away. Now, this guy wasn't a kid. He was a college student. But, you know, I would run away. I'd grab a glass of tea and, I don't know, a pair of sunglasses, and I felt like that was all I needed to live on my own when I was 10 years old. I know there's a chance that he was pissed off enough that he just got out of there, didn't take nothing with him. It just doesn't make sense why he would do that. Anyway... Like everything else, kind of like the Tom Dooley story, eventually legend and rumor started taking over. Now, before I tell you the short legend of what they say happened, I got to tell you a fact. In 1837, Peter Dromgul's uncle, who was a Virginia congressman named George C. Dromgul, killed a man named Daniel Duggar in a duel on the banks of the Roanoke River in Northampton County, North Carolina. Now, Peter's legend is that because of a girl, there was a quarrel, 
and he was killed while he was dueling some other dude up there on that hill. One story is that Peter's blood was all over this giant boulder, and another story is that he was buried underneath the boulder. But a lot of people assume that that legend about Peter dying in a duel is actually a, a shoot-off from the true story of his uncle who killed a man in a duel. Anyway, they say if you go up there today, that rock is still stained with Peter's blood and you can't ever get the stains off. Now, I've drove up to Dromgul Castle. I don't know if it's a private driveway, but it looks like one. So every once in a while, I'll drive up and take a look at the place. You know, it just looks kind of cool. I don't hang out there. I don't walk around. So I, re I really don't know if that big old rock is still up there or not. Next, I want to tell you about the Coker Arboretum. That's C-O-K-E-R. Now, this, this may actually be my favorite place on campus. It's a five-acre garden, and it's full of plants from the southeast U.S. and, what it says, their East Asian counterparts. And this includes uh, gymnosperms and seasonal plants and a colorful plant display. Anyway, it was established in 1903 by William Chambers Coker, who was the university's first professor of botany. Now, the area was formerly just a wet, muddy pasture because that's where they kept all the animals, the, you know, the livestock for the campus. But eventually, they started to make the place a little more enticing. Now, it's full of pathways, and it's kind of like a park. It's got a bunch of benches out there you can sit on in little grassy areas, and, and it's just a, a really peaceful spot to just walk through. It don't take very long, but it's actually noted as one of the most complete botanical gardens in America. Now that wraps up my favorite places. I'm going to say that because now I'm going to tell you about UNC Hospital. Now UNC Hospital is certainly not one of my favorite places. However, I was born there. My wife was born there. My kids were born there. Most of my family was born there. And I think it's probably safe to say most people in my community were probably born at UNC Hospital. So the story here is that the School of Medicine was established at the college in 1879. Well, in 1947, the General Assembly appropriated funds for the construction of North Carolina Memorial Hospital, which is what it was called when I was born there. Well, the hospital opens up in 1952 and became the only state-owned teaching hospital in North Carolina. In 1989, just a few years after I was born, it got its name changed to UNC Hospital. Now, you remember how UNC has a consolidated system for their different schools, well, a hospital kind of got the same thing, because in 1998, the UNC healthcare system is established by the General Assembly, and this was kind of the beginning of what would eventually be a really long list of UNC hospital systems. I might talk about them again in just a minute. In 2001, the NC Women's Hospital and NC Children's Hospital moved to the now freestanding facility that is right beside the main hospital, and this is where my two kids were born. Well, now let's, let's talk about the Tar Heels just for a minute. This isn't a basketball podcast. I'm not going to turn it into a basketball podcast, but I can't talk about UNC without talking about the UNC Tar Heels. There's a lot of sports at UNC, but to be absolutely honest with you, the only ones people care about is basketball and sometimes football. Now, Dean Smith was the coach of the Tar Heels for 36 years. My mom actually went to school with his daughter, I think. And it actually wasn't too, too long ago that he retired. I mean, it's, it's been some time, but I guess time flies. Anyway, in the Tar Heels career so far, they have won seven NCAA championships. 
And I would say that their biggest contender is Duke University, better known as the Duke Blue Devils. Now, I know at my job and pretty much everywhere I go, everybody talks about it when Carolina and Duke play. I think everybody loves the rivalry, and each side loves to hate the other side. And that's all I'm really going to say about the Tar Heels, at least for now. Now, when it comes to sports, I think everybody's favorite player is Ramesses. Now, if you don't know, Ramesses is a ram, and he is the mascot of UNC. And on game nights, they'll paint his horns blue, and they'll come walk him out, and he's just, he's kind of a cool animal. I actually know where he lives, so when I'm riding around, sometimes you, you can see Ramesses sitting out in the pasture. Well, the original Ramesses started in 1924. The idea of getting a ram for a mascot started with a head cheerleader at the time named Vic Huggins. Now, she was inspired by a football player named Jack the Battering Ram, Merritt. After watching him, and I guess based on his name, she decided to, that UNC needed to have a ram as a mascot. And so she got the blessing of the athletics department, and with $25, she went out and got a pedigree ram from either Texas or Tennessee, depending on which store you believe. Well, Ramesses made his debut at a game against the Virginia, Virginia Military Institute on November 8, 1924. Now, of course, there have been a lot of Ramesses over the years. I tried to find out how many there have been, but, but I couldn't find an exact number. Now, I hate to go out on a, a negative story or a bad note, but I have to talk about Silent Sam. He's He was in the news, you know, recent, I say in the past couple of years. And so I'd like to mention something about Silent Sam. Silent Sam is a statue of a fictional Confederate soldier. Now, he was commissioned by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. He was created to commemorate the UNC students and Confederate soldiers who died in the Civil War, and he was unveiled in 1913. Now, somewhere in the 50s, he got the name Silent Sam. The reason is, if you look, his ammo pouch is empty, which means, you know, his fictional character didn't fire a shot. Now, here's where the story gets kind of shitty. At the unveiling of Silent Sam, Julian Carr, who's known as a white supremacist and the namesake of the town of Carborough, gave a speech. Now, for reasons that I don't understand... During this speech, he included a story where a black lady had offended a white lady on the street. And this, this offense that he spoke of took place apparently just a few weeks after the Civil War ended. Well, Julian Carr went on to say that he performed the, quote, pleasing duty of horsewhipping her until her skirts hung in shreds, unquote. Now, I'm not sure why... A description of him whipping a black lady with a horse whip until her skirt hung in, in shreds was pertinent to the unveiling of Silent Sam. So I'm assuming he was just trying to establish his superiority for the crowd that was before him. However, he must not have felt um, that superior because also in the speech, he talks about how there was federal troops on the campus. And so he slept with a shotgun under his pillow for the next few weeks. Now, I don't think I would admit to a whole crowd that I was a coward. However, I have noticed that most people who like beating on women are usually pretty scared of men. However, fast forward over 100 years later, and on the night before the first day of class for the 2018-2019 school year, around 250 protesters toppled Silent Sam to the ground. Now, protests against the statue really began in the 1960s during the civil rights movements. 
After Martin Luther King was assassinated, some, some students covered Silent Sam in red paint. Well, defenders of the statue, they took the red paint off and decorated him with Confederate flags. So you can see that this statue's been a point of contention for, for many, many years. But like I said, it was tore down, and I actually have no idea where the statue is today. I can Google it, but I didn't. And that brings me to the end of this UNC episode. I hope it wasn't too dry. I, I tried to make it as interesting as I could. I know a lot of it, like I said, I have to just kind of drone on about dates and stuff. Um, when I think of a more interesting way to, to do that, I, I promise you I will. Maybe I can sing it or something. But but anyway, like I said earlier in the episode, if you enjoyed this one or you hadn't heard my past episodes and want to, go to www.dnceverythingpodcast.com and there you can find all my other episodes and all the ways to contact me. Also, I have a little write-up there about the show and a little bit about myself. And you can see a list of all the different platforms that you can listen to the show on if you don't want to go to the website all the time. And with that being said, I'll talk to you next time. The music in this episode comes from archesaudio.com and freepd.com.